Thank you, Tri-County. Have your Bibles. We'll be in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, as we've been going through the book of Matthew together. Matthew 12, let's read verses 31 and 32. This is Jesus speaking. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Normally, I start out a sermon with a a story or an anecdote or some sort of observation from life about how the way our world works and how God's ways are different in a way to try to get your attention or connect. But if those verses right there don't get your attention, um, then you're not paying attention. It should get your attention really for two reasons, I think. First of all, Scripture is true. And if there is such a sin of which there is no going back, a sin from which there is no forgiveness, we better know what that is. The second reason I think that this verse gets our attention is because when we look at the whole of Scripture, it almost seems like this verse is out of place, or a mistake, or doesn't make sense. You read it and you say, you know, the, the whole of Scripture, the big picture teaching of Scripture is that God forgives that he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, showing love to thousands of generations. And then, and then you read a verse like this, which is repeated in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This isn't just a one-off. That there is such a sin that is unforgivable. It raises all kinds of questions of how it fits in with the whole of Scripture. Let me just give you an example. If you want to, keep your finger there. Turn over to 1 Timothy, or it'll be on the screen. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And let me just read you a few verses of Paul's testimony just to give you an idea of, even though you know that this verse that Matthew quotes or records seems to be at first blush at odds with the rest of Scripture. Listen to how Paul talks. Verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though I was formerly a, and here's the term we're going to see, a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy, mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost, foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him and have eternal life. That is, that's the testimony of Scripture. So when you read a verse that says, that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but that the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. It makes you stop and 
ponder. Now, if you've grown up in church like me, you've probably been told this. If you're afraid, if you're concerned that you have, have committed this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, if you're concerned about committing it, then you haven't, which makes me feel a lot better as long as that's true. So this morning, we are going to look at this passage of Scripture. We're going to look at it in, in both of its bigger context of this verse, its context here in Matthew, and the broader context of Scripture. And it, and it presents some unique challenges, because as we've already seen, it seems to be, at first blush, at odds with, with Scripture. So what do you do? Let's take a little Bible study lesson here. What do you do when this happens? Well, the first thing that you do, imagine like you're putting together a puzzle or a mosaic, and you're spreading out all the pieces, and you find this one, and you look at it, and you're like, I'm not sure that this is the, this is the right puzzle. Maybe this got mixed in with something else, and you look at it, and you're like, I'm not sure. What do you do? You're putting together this, this tile mosaic or something. You, first thing you're going to do is you're going to really look at this tile, this piece of glass, this piece of puzzle, and you're going to examine it. And you're going to see what it has on it and what it, what it means for itself. And then you're going to look at the whole picture and say, okay, how does, this, how does this fit in with the rest of Scripture? How does this fit in with the rest of our understanding of God? How can, we, how can both Matthew 12 and 1 Timothy 1 both be true without doing violence to either one? How can the Scriptures have unity? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to first look at this one text of Scripture. We are going to understand what Jesus is saying when he says these words. And after we get a clear picture and understanding, then we're going to back up and we're going to take off our Bible study hat and we're going to put on our theology hat and we're going to look more big picture and say, okay, how does this fit in with everything else that we know about God? So let's, Matthew chapter 12. And this will take a, a couple of minutes, but I want to read all the way through from verse number 22 all the way down to verse 37. That's going to be our text for today. I want to read all the way through it. I want you to get the big picture, and then we're going to go back through one verse at a time. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, him being Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, every I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Either make a tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for by the tree 
is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak anything good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, if you remember, the, the, the bigger text of, of Matthew that we're in right now is Matthew deal, or, or Jesus dealing with his critics, specifically, as we've seen, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are, are ratcheting up the, the criticism against Jesus. We saw earlier that they criticized him for how he dealt with the Sabbath, going through and picking heads of grain and even just simply telling a man to stretch out his hand in order to heal it. And, and the Pharisees are condemning him for this. And as we saw last week, Jesus, not, not wanting to be a rabble-rouser or someone who throws gas on the fire, withdrew in his gentleness and his humility and had compassion on the crowds and healed them. And so now Matthew records another healing of someone who is demon-possessed, blind, and mute. Look at it again. Verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Now the whole point of this text is not so much the healing. This is all of the healing that we get. That's all of the details. Pretty straightforward. What Matthew was more concerned about was the reaction and the controversy that come as a result. So there are two different reactions, first by the crowd and second by the Pharisees. Now, look at verse 23. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Son of David being a, a messianic term. But the way that, and this doesn't come across very well in the English, the way that the Greek is worded and written, it's expecting a negative answer. So this isn't a statement of faith by the crowd. This is a statement of skepticism, by and large. Can, you, we would say it this way. This can't be David's son, right? I mean, so, so why? What, what's the connection with David? Well, first of all, it's, it's messianic. Second of all, the only thing that we see with, with David, um, the only person that we see having some sort of influence or victory over evil spirits in the Old Testament is David when he would play music for Saul, and Saul would be relieved by the evil spirit that was tormenting him. And here's Jesus continuing to heal, casting out demons, and the crowd looks at it and is at least asking the question, maybe still in a doubting way, but at least asking the question, is this David's son? The Pharisees have a different response, though. Verse 24 but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. The charge of the Pharisees was a serious one. This is not some sort of academic theological debate where they're sitting around, you know, drinking coffee and having a discussion, you know, with their beards and their elbow patches and all of that. No, this is, this is a serious charge. If Jesus is, in fact, a, a sorcerer, as the later Jewish historians, when they would record back of Jesus, they would, they would call him someone who practiced sorcery or black arts or, or, or fool, and fooled and deceived the people. This is something that the Pharisees are saying to, first of all, discredit his ministry, 
but also possibly give them grounds for capital punishment against Jesus. So this is not just some debate they're having. In essence, they're saying this man needs to be silenced and probably executed. It's by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that he does this. And so Matthew goes on to record, and Jesus gives his his interpretation, his understanding of what they are saying. Look at the first. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? The first thing that Jesus points out is that by attributing his ministry to Beelzebul, that is illogical. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus is saying, how can, you, how can you say this is the devil? I mean, just think about it. If Satan starts to go around and casting out devils and, and sending um, demons away, the kingdom is going to fall. Satan is not in the business of making his kingdom fall. He's, he's making a point that the Pharisees are just making up anything. The second thing that he, he points out is that they are inconsistent. The, the argument or the belief that Jesus is doing this by Beelzebul is inconsistent. Look at it. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. It seems that there were other people who cast out demons in Jesus' day. Other Jews, maybe possibly other people who called themselves Pharisees. And if you read the history, they didn't, they didn't cast out demons with authority like Jesus did. They would do these special, you know, anointings and washings and all of these ritual things to try to help somebody. They did not compare at all to the way that Jesus dealt with demons by speaking a word. But Jesus is saying to the, to the Pharisees, this, it's illogical. Why would Satan do this? And it's inconsistent because there are other Jews who do this and you're not running around calling them messengers of Satan. And so, verse number 28. So if, this is, if Jesus is not casting out demons by Beelzebul, by whose power and authority is he operating? Verse 28. But... If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then may he, he may plunder his house, and whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So by disproving that he wasn't doing this ministry, he wasn't casting out demons by demonic activity, he then turns to ask the Pharisees, so if it's not demons, then how is all this happening? I'll tell you, Jesus says, it's by the Spirit of God. We saw last week, as, as Matthew quoted from um, Isaiah 42, that Isaiah recorded that the Spirit would be upon the Messiah, and now Jesus is operating in that in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's casting out demons. And Jesus says, if this has happened, this is a lot more than what we think. It means that the kingdom of God is here. 
That's huge. It means the kingdom of God is not just, you know, I'm another miracle worker. It means the kingdom is here. We use the term, if you want to sound smart in theological circles, put this, put this term in your brain, realized eschatology or inaugurated eschatology. What does that mean? Uh, inaugurated meaning the beginning, eschatology meaning end. The end has begun. When we, when we say we are living in the last days, sometimes people think that the last days are like the days right before Jesus comes. Usually what the Bible means when it says last days is the days from the time of Jesus forward. And Jesus, so he's saying, that means that the kingdom is here. We are not just awaiting a kingdom one day. We are living in a kingdom now. That a kingdom that has begun and we are waiting for its full completion when Jesus comes again. It's like, it's like we're living in the time after D-Day, but before V-E Day. So, so D-Day was like you know, the decisive battle for the, for the war in Europe. After that, it was all downhill. Victory was certain. It was going to happen, but it hadn't quite reached fulfillment yet. That's the day, those are the days that we're living in right now. So Jesus is saying... If I'm casting out demons, not my Beelzebul, if I'm casting out demons by the Spirit, this means something for you. It means the kingdom is here. It means the kingdom has begun. It means that Jesus is the king. And so he says to them, if, you know, if, if, if you're going to go to a strong man's house, you're going to show up at somebody's house and rob them, what do you first have to do? You've got to tie them up. What's Jesus saying? I'm tying up the enemy. I'm tying him up. There's a new king in town. The prince of this world, he is, he is in the process of being defeated. And I am tying him up, and I am defeating him, and I am casting out demons, and I am healing the sick. And I'm tying up the strong man because there is a new era of the king beginning. And Jesus says, you're either with me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. And then he says these words. Therefore, I tell you that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will not be forgiven, and whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. What is Jesus, what has just happened? Where Jesus looks at this and says, let's talk about something here. Let's talk about blasphemy against the Spirit. What has just happened? What does, he, what does he see? Now, look up with me at verse number 24. Verse number 24. When this exorcism happened and this man was healed, who do the Pharisees give credit for this miracle? Beelzebul, right? When Jesus looks at this same example, look at verse number 28. Who does Jesus give credit for this miracle? The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. So what the, what the Pharisees have done is they have taken the work of the Holy Spirit and called it satanic. 
And there is no worse blasphemy, no worse slander that you can speak against God. More than looking at his work and saying, that's the work of the devil. When we look at this one text, when we understand what is Jesus seeing and what is Jesus calling blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? We'll look broader later, but let's just look here. What is he, what is he seeing when he says these words in verses 20, or 31 and 32? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is this. To slander the Holy Spirit by saying that his works are the work of the devil. To slander the Holy Spirit in such a way as to say that his works are the work of the devil. So why is it then that Jesus would say that to blaspheme the Son would be forgiven, but to, be, to, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit would not be? I think it's this. You look at the, look at the passerbys, people who are watching what Jesus is doing, watching this man who are, who are then expected to make the leap of faith that this man is more than a man, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. That would be sometimes a difficult leap to make. In fact, you look at the crowd, and I, I almost think that maybe this is the parallel that Matthew is making, that this is, in a sense, what the crowd did with their, what seems to be an expression of doubt. This, this can't be David's son, right? The crowd doesn't seem to be buying in, but the Pharisees, they take it a lot farther. So to look at Jesus and say, well, I'm not sure if this is the son of man or not, that's one thing. But to watch the unmistakable, undeniable work of the Holy Spirit and taking a man who was demon-possessed and setting him free, opening his blind eyes and loosing his mute tongue and seeing that that is an unmistakable work of God and say, that's satanic. There's no excuse for that. There's no excuse. You might disbelieve Jesus, but you can't say that that work that miracle of restoration was a satanic work. See, the Pharisees in this whole thing, what we're seeing is, is they're not arguing in good faith. They're looking for any reason to discredit Jesus. One of the, one of the commentaries I, I read this week, um, the, the commentator uh, made the point that, that the Pharisees were, um, were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. And I think that's a misreading of the text. The Pharisees are doing this on purpose. They are, I mean, you look at it, they have now gone Jesus from being a, a Sabbath breaker to now they're claiming he is demonic. He went from, you know, he, healing a man with a withered hand to healing a man who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. So Jesus went from a but I would say a lesser miracle to a greater miracle. And the Pharisees, they didn't, they didn't track this. They didn't say, well, maybe, the, maybe, maybe we're wrong. What did they do? They went the exact opposite way. When Jesus did a greater miracle, they came against him with a greater attack. And you can begin to start to see an idea of what I think Jesus is getting at, that this is un unforgivable. Because it's a road from which you cannot recover. What if a man is raised from the dead? What kind of slander will then you bring against him? 
And so the Pharisees, if we look just at this, at this text, Jesus sees the Pharisees who are not, their eyes are not open to the Spirit, they're not listening, they're only looking for ways and opportunities to see Jesus discredited and destroyed. And Jesus says, you're blaspheming the Spirit. When you blaspheme the Spirit, there's no, there's no forgiveness. There's no way out. It's a pretty harsh thing for Jesus to say based on the simple words of the Pharisees. Like, no, we're just, having, we're just talking. What's the big deal? We're just, we're just having a conversation. I didn't, I didn't hurt anybody, right? They're just words. And Jesus points out that these are not just words. Look at verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. What does that mean? You brood of vipers. This is, <laughs> Jesus is not saying, well, you're just mistaken. No. How can you speak? So here we're getting to words. We're getting to blasphemy is a, a sin of slander or of lying. How can you speak good when your hearts are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus is pointing out the fact that this isn't a speaking issue. It's a heart issue. Blasphemy is not so much a sin of the lips as it is a sin of the heart. And they are, the Pharisees are revealing their heart by their lips. They're revealing with this blasphemous statement, you healed him by Beelzebul. They're revealing that they are rotten to the core. And it's a lot more about their heart than it is about their lips. And so Jesus looks at this account and he says to them, you blaspheme the Spirit. And when you blaspheme the Spirit, there is no, there is no forgiveness. And that's what it means. When you look at this text, and you understand what it means in its, in its context, Jesus is talking about taking something of the Spirit and attributing it to Satan, and so slandering the Holy Spirit. So now as we step back and we say, okay, let's look at the broader context of Scripture. What does this mean? Because everything else in Scripture seems to indicate that God is merciful. God is kind. He forgives. So how can this text of Matthew be true? And other places like 1 Timothy 1 and many, 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 many others also be true. I think here's what's going on as I, I step back and I put my, my theologian hat on. 
that these Pharisees in this example are on such a path and such a trajectory that they are closing off their eyes and their ears to the Holy Spirit. That the more the Holy Spirit does to try to get their attention, the more the Holy Spirit tries to show himself to them, the more he tries to pull them in, the more they turn and walk away. In fact, the drawing of the Spirit in their lives is becoming is being completely counterproductive. They are responding by going further and further and further and further. And if that's how you respond to the Holy Spirit, whose job it is to draw us to Christ, if your response to the drawing of the Spirit is to, is to back up farther and farther and farther, where will you find forgiveness? Because forgiveness is only found in Christ. If you, if you look at the work of the Holy Spirit and say, I'm not going to listen to that, it's satanic. Where else? Who else is going to draw you to the Son except for the Spirit? There's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to turn. And I think people are right when they say, if you're concerned about having committed the unpardonable sin, then you haven't. I think those people are true. I think that is a right statement. Why? Because if you cared about what the Holy, if you cared about pleasing God, if you cared about what the Holy Spirit was saying, if you were trying to listen to his convicting voice, you are not rejecting him, but you're welcoming him into your life. See, the, the crowd, the crowd was still in a negative stance. They weren't, they weren't doing this, but Jesus wasn't saying that the crowd was blaspheming but the Pharisees the Pharisees had made up their mind it did not matter what Jesus did what the Holy Spirit did through him they were not going to listen ever and so by their fruit it is made known so what about us What does this mean? What do we as believers have to take away from this? We talked about what does it mean if I, you know, do I, if I think that I have committed the unpardonable sin, that if that's how you feel, then you're still listening to the voice of the Spirit. But what about other people? Have you ever heard somebody say something or do something and you, and you think, man, that's bordering on Holy Spirit blasphemy? First thing I would, I would counsel us is to don't, not to ever assume that someone has committed the unpardonable sin. Don't ever assume, don't ever look at somebody and say, boy, that, I heard what they said, and they have committed the unpardonable sin, and there is no way for them to return. Because only Jesus knows that. Only the Holy Spirit knows if they are drawing. It's not our responsibility to, to pick out people and say, well, you've committed that, and you're too far gone. Because the, the, the bigger theme of Scripture is that nobody's too far gone. That the love of Christ is available. So, so we don't have to get in the position of, of going around. Some people will say, especially for, for you know, us in a Pentecostal church, and you'll hear other people of other groups or other denominations or whatever 
being critical of the move of the Spirit or speaking in tongues or other manifestations of the Spirit, and you'll wonder to yourself, man, did that person, did they just, have they read Matthew 12? I mean, are they, did they just do this? And that's not really our place. It's not really important for us. Here is, I thought this was a great quote. And I included this, and there were, I had, I had like seven, six of these quotes, and I'm like, I can't have six of these quotes in this sermon. Um, I'll just bore people too much. But it's one of these things that af- after we deal with what it says here in Matthew, and then we have to kind of make a little bit of a theological leap here. Because Matthew is not connecting all of these dots for us. We have to, we have to do it. And so what does this exactly mean? And so I thought this was maybe the best quote um, of, of what all of this means for us. And this is by William Hendrickson, uh, who wrote a, a commentary on Matthew. And he's describing the, the life of these Pharisees. Do we have that? Can you read that? Is that small enough? You see people squinting. I'll, I'll read clearly to you. For penitence, they substituted hardening. And for confession, plotting. Thus, by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, they are dooming themselves. Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, a murderer, there is hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But when a man has become hardened, So that he has made up his mind not to pay attention to the promptings of the Spirit, not to even listen to his pleadings and warning voice. He has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. He has sinned the sin unto death. One commentator that I read this week named Scott McKnight made a a comparison, which I think is right, between apostasy and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What's apostasy? Apostasy is when you you are a believer and you reject Christ in such a way for such a time that you have eventually turned off your heart to the message of the gospel, that there is no road back, that you have so hardened yourself, so rejected Christ, so trampled on his blood, crucifying him over again, to paraphrase the writer of Hebrews, that there is no, there's no way back. And McKnight says it this way, blasphemy against the spirit and apostasy are related. Apostasy is acceptance followed by repudiation of Jesus. Blasphemy against the spirit is not preceded by acceptance. That there is a a place that you can get if you reject Christ and you reject, reject the words of the Holy Spirit repeatedly and completely, that there can become a time when your heart is no longer sensitive to the voice of the Spirit. And if you can't hear the voice of the Spirit, there truly is no way for salvation. And we don't know when people cross that line. It's not our job to be the judge of that. 
But I do want to remind us of this, and we're going to see this more next week. That there is a danger in being exposed to the message of Jesus, of being exposed to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and rejecting him. There is a danger. And Jesus is going to spell out exactly the danger that these Pharisees are headed down by seeing and rejecting, hearing and rejecting, and they're going to a place that they don't want to go. We have to be willing to look at our hearts and never get comfortable with saying no to the Holy Spirit. Even in things that we think are small, never getting comfortable doing things our own way, always listening for the voice of the Spirit, always saying yes, always trying to follow, and thereby making our hearts more sensitive to his voice and not less. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that teaches us, that reveals to us who you are. We would have have been left in our own darkness had you not come and shown us the way to the Father. Your kingdom is here. If you drive out demons by the Spirit of God, it shows that the kingdom of God is among us, and we are living in that today, and we thank you for that. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, there may be some among us today that you would say that the Holy Spirit is speaking to me today that I need Jesus, that you need forgiveness. And you don't want to take the path of the Pharisees, certainly, and you don't even want to take the path of the crowd who's not sure. Today, you hear the voice of the Spirit, and you're in. You need Jesus. You want his forgiveness. You want him to restore you. You want to live for him. You hear the voice of, the, of Jesus. You sense the drawing of the Spirit, and today, your message is not one of rejection or doubt. It's yes. If that's you, and nobody's looking around, I want you to take your first step of faith. You say, that's me. I need Jesus today. I need forgiveness. I need him. While no one's looking around, I want you to raise your hand right where you are so I can know to pray for you. You say, that's me. I need Jesus. I need forgiveness. I'm responding to him in faith today, not in doubt and not in rejection. Yes. Anybody? Let's all stand together. We're going to pray together as, as we dismiss. And hopefully the Holy Spirit has spoken some things to you and you're like, okay, I, I know what I'm going to pray for. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. But if, if maybe if not, maybe there are people that you know who you don't know if they've reached this point. In fact, you think they probably haven't reached the point that the Pharisees had, but you're concerned about their soul. Today is the day to pray for them. Maybe, there, maybe you have been sensing promptings of the Holy Spirit and you have been saying no, thinking it's not a big deal. And you realize today that you don't even want to start that journey of saying no to the voice of the Spirit. And you just want to reaffirm today that, God, whatever you say, whatever you ask, my answer is yes. 
the things that you've been speaking to me about today, I'm going to do. Or maybe there's something else that the Holy Spirit has spoken to you. But let's pray together. Father, we lift our hearts and our voices to you. Each one of us, we pray now. First of all, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. Whatever you ask, we say yes. Whatever you ask, we say yes to you today. In the small things, in the big things, we will say yes to you, Holy Spirit. And help us to say yes. Help us to act in faith, even when we are scared, even when we are unsure, even when there's risk. Help us to say yes. We say yes. Holy Spirit, I'll say yes to you. Speak to me more and more clearly. Let me hear your voice more clearly. Father, we pray for those family members, neighbors, co-workers, loved ones who have been saying no to you. Some of them know the truth. And Lord, we intercede for them now. And we ask that you would soften their heart, give them eyes to see and ears to hear, to be open, to respond, not in rejection or even doubt, but to say yes to you. To say yes to you and to follow you. We pray for those who have had hearts hard for a long time, that this time, this season would be the time of repentance and turning back to you. Lord, we pray that you would bring people who are far from you into your kingdom and into your family as testimonies and trophies of your grace. And thank you. Thank you that unpardonable sin is the exception and not the rule. Because, Lord, we all deserve death. We all deserve punishment. We all deserve judgment away from you. But you opened up your arms. You sent your son. You've forgiven and given us life. So this week, may we walk in that. May we walk in your joy and in your peace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here today. Leave, walk out in his grace and in his peace, listening to the voice of the Spirit following him every day. God bless you. We'll see you on Sunday.